Welcome to Harvest Talk, the podcast of Harvest Community Church in Goshen, Indiana. Harvest is a community church with a vision to change the world, and we do that by reaching people and building their lives. And my name is Jeremy Gwaltney, and I am excited to spend some time with you today. And as always, you can check out more about Harvest at our website, hccgoshen.org. And I hope all of you are having a great week. This is Holy Week, what uh, Christians typically call uh, Holy Week, which is the week leading into Easter. It kicks off with Palm Sunday, which was this past Sunday, and we are moving now into uh, Easter Sunday. And so I hope you guys enjoyed uh, my little series on authority, accountability, and unity. And I kind of want to do something different uh, this week as we do start to think about Easter and the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. And so actually what I want to do uh, today is something kind of unique, maybe a little ambitious, uh, but what I would like to actually do is kind of reflect a little bit on why the resurrection of Jesus was necessary, but particularly aim it at people that maybe don't believe. And I'm kind of titling this um, Atheist to Jesus in 20 Minutes. And so that's where we are, are going today. And basically what I want to do is I want to start with the basic understanding of um, kind of an atheistic existence, an existence that says there is no God. And starting there, I'm hoping to walk you up to a place where you should at least be intellectually honest enough to consider the claims of Jesus. And so that's kind of where where we are going uh, today. So with that, I just want to kind of get started. And so uh, first of all, I just want to say this is um, if there are any atheists out there listening uh, to you, I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying this to belittle you in any way. I understand uh, there's a lot of confusion when it comes to a text as big as the Bible. And there's also a lot of people that have ignored uh, legitimate arguments against the Bible uh, or tried to answer them in very simplistic ways. But what I'm asking today is wherever you are in your consideration of faith or your consideration of Jesus, that you think about some of the questions I'd like to ask you uh, today. So <clears throat> let's first of all talk about the issue of being an atheist and whether or not that's a defensible uh, I'm going to start to say philosophical position. And so here would be my question number one uh, for someone who is approaching uh, life as if there is no God, at least from a philosophical standpoint. And, and my first question would be this. How much knowledge do you actually have? How much knowledge do you actually have? When you consider all of the knowledge of the universe, all the knowledge of history, all the knowledge of existence, um, how long I've been sitting in this room before the podcast uh, started, how many lights there are in this room, uh, how many buttons or knobs are on uh, my little board here, how many words are on the sheet of paper in front of me. And that's just a few things that I've not identified here. The brand of camera we are using uh, to film this, uh, you know, uh, what, what model phone I have sitting next to me. Like, that's just a little bit of the knowledge that is capable of having just in this little setting right here right now and then you go back beyond that and you think where is this room that i am located on what was this room before i turned it into a podcast studio what was on this space before there was a building here in which the room was um you know like like was this area that i'm sitting in ever underwater was it uh, all those things like like there's when you think about all the knowledge in the universe how much do you know? 
and 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 I would I'd venture to guess even if you thought you were one of the smartest people to ever live, you would struggle even to say I know one percent of all the knowledge that's out in the universe. Well, okay, let's just take that. Let's assume you're the smartest person that's ever lived, and you know one percent of all the knowledge of what's out in the universe. Okay, could it not be possible? Could it not be possible that the knowledge of God exists? in the other 99% that you don't know yet. Just want you to think about that. Could it not be possible that the knowledge of God exists outside of the bit of knowledge that you already know yet? Is that intellectually wrong to think about? And, and I believe that it really isn't possible for you to step back and go, no, it's impossible that I know enough knowledge, I have enough knowledge of existence for forever to definitively say there is no God. Well, if that's the case, then we've just changed categories. You're no longer an atheist. We've moved from an atheist into, uh, into an agnostic, uh, someone who, who, who might not know if there's an existence of God. Now, I know some of you might be going, well, how do you know that you've discovered God? And I, and I would just simply say uh, this. Most of the world believes in some type of higher power. And so the, the understanding that there is a God to know out there or to a higher being that is out there is actually more commonplace than that which denies his existence. And so at least for the vast majority of the world, they believe they've come into some understanding that leads them to understand that there's an existence of a godlike being. Only, it's only atheists that deny what those people say. And, so, and we're just simply saying that in the knowledge that we have, we've discovered God. Okay, and and so let's let's so let's let's stay with that category. You, we've now moved from atheist to agnostic. And so, what does an agnostic think? An agnostic sits there and goes, "I'm willing to concede that while I don't necessarily live as if there is an existence of God, uh, there could, there may or may not be an existence of God." And so, let's say that you're an agnostic. So, let me ask you this question: What comes to mind when you think of God? When the phrase God is used, if you believed there could be a God, what kind of being would that be? What comes to mind? How, what, what, what does this God look like? How does that God compare to humanity? How does that God compare to creation? How does that God compare to science? How does that God compare in existence? What comes to mind when you think, contemplate the word God? And, and, and I'd venture to say this, that as you think about that, everybody out there, they, they wouldn't maybe phrase it this way, but most likely what it comes to your mind is something that's like this. It's a being in which nothing greater can be conceived of. In other words, whatever God is, whoever he is, uh, or, she, or she is, or it is, however you want to conceive of it, that being is greater than any other being in existence. It is the best, and you, you can't get best better than best. It's the superlative of existence. And so you step back and you go, okay, um, if there is a God, then that God must be better than all other existence. It must be, perhaps we would use the word perfect. It's flawless. Uh, the, uh, and, so, and so somewhere when you step back and start thinking about what a God might be like, you're going to start to categorize things based on what is the best. But God, God is 
that which nothing greater can be conceived of or thought of. And so the first question I would have for you is if you're sitting there listening going, you know what, yeah, that makes sense. When I think about if God exists, when I think about him or her, uh, then, then it's got to be greater than the exi- any other existence. And, and, and most of us would think that way. And so then my question becomes, then my first question is, in a world where we all agree no one is perfect, like that's a very common thought, no one is perfect, why do we have a category of perfection in our mind? Like when in a world in which we say, you know, no one is perfect, but when we think about God, God is is that that being that there's nothing greater than it's as close to perfection as we can come up with and most of us when we think about god move in that direction god has to be greater than me god has to be greater than uh the the existence of the uh, of, of created things god has to be the best god has to be the superlative god has to be perfect well in a world where when we look at humanity we automatically assume assume Humanity is going to be imperfect, or creation is going to be imperfect, or animals are going to be imperfect. How in the world do we have a category of perfection when imperfection is the norm? And I would argue that that is a category put there by one who is perfect. That just the very category of perfection is one in which is an argument for the existence of something perfect out there. And I would argue that if what comes to your mind when you think of God is that which is the greatest, something that is greater cannot be conceived of, it's there because God put it there. That that is God's way of appealing to you that, hey, listen, I am in existence. And so the category is an interesting issue, but then let's keep going. Um, let's assume that the idea is true. Let's assume that God is that which is the greatest uh, to be conceived. Then let me just ask a few questions. What is greater? What if God is greater than, than you or anyone else, what is greater than a God of hate or a God of love? Most of us would suggest that a God of love is better than a God of hate. A God who rejects or a God who forgives? Most of us would argue that forgiveness is greater than rejection. A God who in, invites or a God who excludes? Most of us would argue that a God who invites is greater than a God who excludes. Then let me ask you this, which is greater in looking at imperfect beings like humanity, which most almost all of us agree humans are imperfect, and yet we have a concept of God out there that is perfect, then which is greater? A God who leaves imperfection alone and refuses to step in and help it, or a God who steps into the imperfections of our lives and asks us, but it helps us in those places of imperfection. Which is greater? a God that helps us make up the differences in our flaws or a God that kind of sits back and, and doesn't get get involved? What What is greater? A God who sits back and demands that you figure out things on your own or a God who would come and coach you in those places of imperfection? Which is greater? A God who sits back and has nothing to do with with their, with the, the reality of, of, of existence, or God that invests in that reality of existence to lead it in a place that's greater than it is. I would argue that the greater of these two is a God that doesn't sit back, but rather invest in relationship 
into that which is imperfect in hopes of making it better, or dare I say, in hopes of making it perfect. That it's a testimony of greatness to interact with that which is below you than to ignore that which is below you. And so if that is true, if that's a category that you would, you would agree upon, then here's the simple fact. The simple fact is this, is that Jesus has the only message of faith in which God comes to man to make up the difference between humanity's imperfection and God's perfection. Jesus has the only message of faith in which God comes to the imperfection of humanity to help bring it to the perfection of Godness. All other faith systems, all other faith systems, require you to make up the difference. They require you to fix the problem, whether it's, it's you figuring out how to fix the problems by communing with the spirit world, whether it's you to fix the problems by living according to certain rules and regulations or uh, certain fasting or certain religious activities or certain prayers, those kind of things. Every other faith system in the world requires you to figure out how to fix yourself. Jesus has the only message of faith in which God enters into our reality. The perfect God enters into our imperfection to bring us to Him. Which is greater? A God who steps into the imperfection in order to make it better, or a God who removes Himself, or a God who demands that imperfection try to figure out how to be perfect on their own? Which is greater? And then the last question I would ask in this line of questioning is this, which is greater to be living or to be dead. If death defeats God, it doesn't mean anything. If death defeats God, what has God done that any of us can't do? We all can die. So which is better, for God to be living or God to be dead? And then, then I, would, I would say, obviously, the greater is that God to be alive. And then I would say this, is that every other religious leader while proclaiming that he or, or she knew God, not that they were God, but that he or she knew God, every other religious leader is dead. Jesus proclaims something radically different. And so if the greater thing, if what comes to your mind when you think about God is, the, is that which nothing greater can be thought of, and the greater thing is a God who steps into the imperfection of humanity to help it out with perfection, and the greater thing is that for that God to be alive and not dead... Then that bring and, and if Christian the message of Jesus is the only message in which a perfect God enters into the imperfection of man, and, and the message and the person of Jesus is the only one in which God declares himself alive, I would invite you to consider the claims of Jesus. And so here's the thing: this is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. What we celebrate on Easter Sunday is the fact that Jesus, who told us that he was going to die, was resurrected on the third day. And this is from the eyewitness Matthew, who wrote it in his account of Jesus' life. He said this, And when they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man was a reference to Jesus. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. The eyewitness says, point blank, says, Jesus came to us and said, Listen, I'm the Son of Man, I'm God, which is a reference to God. I'm going to be delivered up to humanity. I'm going to be put to death. 
and then I'm going to be resurrected. Jesus said that he is God, that he is going to, be re- going to die, and he's going to defeat death by being resurrected. Jesus was the God that came into the imperfection of humanity and to bring perfection, the perfection of God to us, to invite us into that relationship with God. And then Jesus was the one who defeated death in the resurrection. And this is what eyewitnesses say. You say, well, Jeremy, how, why should I believe in the resurrection? Well, let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. First of all, we have eyewitness accounts that say they saw Jesus after he was resurrected. Matthew, the one I just read from, uh, was, was a first century tax collector. He was actually a traitor to his own people. And, and, uh, and yet he followed Jesus. He left his wealth. He left his position. He left everything that the Roman government wanted to give him to follow Jesus, and he saw Jesus die, and he writes and tells us that he saw him alive again. He claims to be an eyewitness. There's the apostle Peter, who through his translator Mark, saw the same thing. Peter was a very successful, from what we know from archaeology, a very successful business person, and he left everything he had to go follow Jesus, and he saw Jesus died and resurrected. He was there in the tomb when the tomb was empty, and he, he, he threw his translator Mark, wrote it down to, to tell us about it. There's the Apostle John, who, who was, again, another eyewitness, who was a young person, who, who, who saw the whole thing and told us about it. And then there was the Apostle Paul, who saw Jesus revealed to him on a vision several years after the death and resurrection. And Paul was a very successful religious leader, set up for life on his career path. He left it all and actually became a, an enemy of the religious system that he left. All these people said that they saw Jesus resurrected. So then you can, but you can say, but Jeremy, why, why not have these people lie? When people lie all the time, why wouldn't they lie here? And, and here's, here's the problem with a lie and a conspiracy theory. Is the more people that have to lie to cover up a conspiracy, the shakier it becomes. The more people that have to lie to, 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 to cover something, the shakier it has to come. And then usually those people have to have something to gain. And yet when you look at the people who claim that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, first of all, there's too many of them. And then the second problem you've got is they had nothing to gain. Again, Matthew, who wrote an account of his life, Matthew was a set-up tax collector. He, could have, he was set up for life. He had nothing to gain by giving away his wealth. And then live. And then we know that Matthew was executed for his belief. He had nothing to gain to live and die by a lie. Peter, the same thing, a very successful fisherman. Uh, we know this from archaeology. He, he, he ended up leaving it all to, 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 to teach on this power, this resurrection, and then he ended up being crucified upside down years later because of this testimony. He had nothing to gain by a lie. Paul, again, set up for life because of his, uh, uh, where he was with, with, uh, with the religious uh, system there. He, he had nothing to gain, and yet he, he, he gave it all up. Why? For a lie? And then he was executed, beheaded in front of a crowd for his belief in Jesus. Why? For a lie? But even if that was, maybe you can help it out. I mean, all, all 11 disciples, all but one of them died, and all of them confessed in seeing Jesus alive. All of them died. Most of the, the early church leaders who saw Jesus, all of them died or suffered terrible torture. Why? For a lie? 
But let's pretend that you can just get past all that, the intellectual difficulty of people dying and giving up everything for a lie. Let's just, let's just pretend you can get past that. Then we have this. There are two brothers of Jesus, lived in the same family with him, under the same roof, with the same mother and the same father who, who, who lived with Jesus. Both of them, we have their accounts of, of their belief in Jesus. And these brothers believe that their, their, their brother was the Son of God and was resurrected from the dead. Now listen, you can confuse a lot of people. You can confuse friends. You can deceive organizations. You can even deceive, I believe, your own mom. It's really hard to deceive your brother. It's really hard for you to convince your brother that you're God. And yet Jesus had two of them that confessed that he was God, and then both of whom died because of that confession. That seems a little impossible. See, here's the thing. In the history of the world, all successful religions these days, all successful religion, religions have leaders who came to know, who, who claimed to know a way to God, but then they died. They all claimed to know a way of God. Very, none of them claimed to be God, and then they died. And then almost all religious leaders who claimed that they were God have died. And most of those were cult leaders, and their cult disseminated quickly after the death of the leader because they all of a sudden realized he's not God, he or she's not God. Only the followers of Jesus serve a religious leader who claimed to be God, who then died, and his followers claim was resurrected from the dead. And they, they believe that claim so strongly that they were willing to die gruesome deaths and give up all the, the wealth in their life for that claim. And that faith system has succeeded. So I ask you, going back to the definition of greatness, if God is that which nothing greater can be conceived of, which makes sense in that definition? A God who came down to enter the imperfection of humanity to bring it to the perfection of God. A God who, who, who lives and is not dead. A God who has a faith system that has a leader who claim to be God, who was resurrected from the dead, who have followers who for 2,000 years have believed so strongly in this confession that they've been willing to give it all up for him, which is the greatest. Now, if you're an atheist out there, you might be going, well, you still haven't convinced me. And I, I said, I completely understand. But here's what I hope you have been convinced of, is that when you look at the claims of Jesus, you can only have three conclusions. It's either that Jesus, was a, Jesus and his followers were complete liars. The second is that Jesus and his followers were all complete madmen. There's no Jesus was a good person. He was either a complete liar or a complete lunatic, or he is who he says he is. The Son of God came to destroy the imperfection of mankind and invite them into the relationship with the perfect God. And that is what I hope at the very least, you're willing to consider. That you're willing to consider that there's a God who loves you, a God that enters into the reality of your world, a God that sees the imperfections in your life. And because of that, because of the message of Jesus, and because Jesus demonstrates that he is God by being resurrected from the dead, that then his claims of who he is and how you can come to, come to perfection and come to peace and love and forgiveness and joy and all those things that we put into the category of greatness that we see in God, 
that you would come to know that. If you'd like to know more, then uh, I would love for you to just check out our webpage, hccgoshen.org. There's a Connect with Harvest uh, place there. You can hit that button. You can send us an email. We would love to talk about this more with you. Also, you can just check us out this weekend, same place, hccgoshen.org. Online at 1045, we'll have an Easter service in which I'll go into what it means for, for what Jesus means when he claims to be the resurrection and life in more detail. Uh, you can also join us in person at 9 and 1045 a.m. We would love for you to come and meet the beautiful Savior who is Jesus Christ. And so I hope that this has been helpful for you today as you think about the reality of Jesus and who he is. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be done for today. So Lord God, I just thank you so much that you were a God that loves us, a God that wanted to enter into our lives, a God that wanted to take the consequences for our imperfection, and a God who demonstrates your perfection by your resurrection. And Lord, pray that everyone within the sound of my voice would right now be have their faith strengthened and their faith awakened into who you are. And Lord, that we would glorify you in all things. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, listen, thank you again for uh, sticking with me with this Harvest Talk. And um, as always, I hope you enjoyed it. Check us out on our website, hccgoshen.org. And as always, please keep reaching people and building their lives. Thank you very much. Thank you.